the National Archives podcast series. Public cooperation with the Household Expenditure Survey. Presented by Mark Dunton. Public cooperation with the Household Expenditure Inquiry, 1953 to 1954. That's my subject. In this talk, my aim is to give some historical context to the Household Expenditure Inquiry and the fascinating raw products of the inquiry, which are the returns held by the National Archives in the series LAB 24. LAB standing for Ministry of Labour and its various guises, yes, various um, uh, predecessors or whatever. Now, these returns, in terms of access to data, have now been fully opened up to researchers for the first time, thanks to the British Living Standards Project, which is the work of the University of Sussex, a particular team led by um, Ian Gaisley and Andy Newell. But more about that later. I'm going to start, this is my plan, I'm going to start with a look at state interventionism and attitudes to it during and after the Second World War. And I'm going to set expenditure surveys in their historical context. I'll also explain how the 1953 inquiry was carried out, looking at publicity for it and the selling points that they used to try and win the public over. And then I'll move on to look at some of the positive aspects of public cooperation. Um, I'm going to show you some uh, interesting document examples from the series Lab 24, the returns which were filled out by the public. And then I'm going to cover the more problematic aspects associated with non-cooperation, the types of people who did not cooperate, um, reasons for non-cooperation, regional perspectives as well. Um, before then drawing to a conclusion, and I'd be happy to uh, take any questions at the end, perhaps we can have a little uh, you know, discussion, let's see how time goes. So, an important part of the British experience of the Second World War was a huge expansion of the role of the state in everyday lives. Um, and it was all done by statute, as I'm going to explain. Under the Emergency Powers Acts of 1939 and 1940, the government assumed wide-ranging powers through the defence regulations. It can be argued that the measure with the greatest impact on the general public was rationing, particularly food rationing. But there were other types of control. In Never Again, Britain 1945-51, to 51, Peter Hennessy writes... Never before and never since has a British government taken so great and so intrusive a range of powers over the lives of its citizens. Where they worked, what they did in uniform or civvies, what they ate, what they wore, what they could read in the newspapers and what they could hear on the wireless sets. But the high degree of state interventionism was not relaxed after the war ended. Britain's economic situation in 1945 was perilous. The country was virtually bankrupt and a further period of austerity was inevitable. As Paul Addison points out in his excellent book, uh, No Turning Back, The Peacetime Revolutions of Post-War Britain, the post-war Labour government, committed to a planned economy, decided to, quote, retain many of the wartime emergency powers for broadly defined 
peacetime purposes. The Supplies and Services Transitional Powers Bill, which was passed in October 1945, made it possible to extend wartime emergency powers over the economy by five years. Defence Regulation 55 provided extensive powers regarding the control of goods and services. Wartime controls over rationing continued. There was some unease about the proliferation of bureaucratic regulations. Paul Addison cites a quotation by the Archbishop of York, Dr Garbett. Dr Garbett voiced his concerns about this theme in 1947. I question if it is really necessary when we are crying out for labour to employ an army of 570,000 clerks and secretaries in the civil service to keep the law-abiding citizen in order. I question if it is necessary to send out a constant stream of forms with long lists of interrogations while at the same time paper for the use of the press is drastically reduced, showing that even Paper for newsprint was rationed for a time. Post-war austerity was uh, obviously a long, hard grind for the British people. Now, some light relief was offered by the Ealing Comedies, which I'm sure uh, a number of you are familiar with, which uh, give valuable insights into the state of the nation at that time. Passport to Pimlico, 1949, struck a chord with many at the time. The plot essentially involved Pimlico declaring itself independent from the remainder of Britain, describing themselves as Burgundians due to an ancient document found in a bomb crater. And they enjoyed immediate freedom from restrictions. To quote Paul Addison, there was a scene in a pub of ration books and ID cards being torn up that apparently provoked roars of applause from the cinema audiences. Whitehall civil servants, portrayed as upper-class toffs, tried to persuade the Pimlico community, or the Burgundians, to rejoin the rest of Britain. I think that's what's being shown here. Uh, note the barbed wire in the foreground. But the civil servants are told, we're sick and tired of your voice in this country. Now, in the end, the situation is resolved, a compromise is found, and Pimlico returns to the fold. However, the rebellious aspects displayed in this film did have resonance for audiences weary of austerity and restrictions in 1949. It should also be noted that food rationing was only lifted between 1952 and 1954. So when the Ministry of Labour and National Service carried out a household expenditure survey in 1953-54, to 54, asking 20,000 households across the UK to provide details of their expenditure in all areas, including housing, fuel, light, food, clothing, household goods, vehicles, transport, services and other categories, you might have been tempted to think that such such a request would have provoked angry refusals to cooperate on a large scale eight years on from the end of the war that it would be seen as a major act of government intrusion on personal and private lives. But far from it. Here is an extract from a glowing press notice issued by the Ministry of Labour and National Service on the 12th of July 
1954, following the completion of the survey. And I'll just, I'll just read this bit. Um, over 13,000 households have cooperated with the Ministry of Labour and National Service in its household expenditure inquiry. This represents two out of every three of approximately 20,000 households asked to help. There were a number of addresses that they found, they got these addresses from the ratings lists, but then they found that actually a number of them were either unoccupied or derelict or maybe bombed out. The inquiry began in January 53 and lasted until the early part of this year, it continues. The 20,000 addresses were selected by a scientific method of sampling and every household found to be living at these addresses was visited and asked to help by furnishing records of its spending during a period of three consecutive weeks. Preliminary figures obtained from detailed information now being critically examined at the headquarters of the Ministry show that 67% of all the households selected completed records of their expenditure. The Ministry press release goes on to state, a response of this magnitude was totally unexpected. Previous experience of surveys of this kind has suggested that not more than 50% of households would be willing to supply comprehensive and intimate details of their expenditure and income. Now I'm going to go on to examine the factors which explain this positive result um, a little later. But first, a bit of background. The Ministry refers to previous experience of surveys of this kind. So when did such surveys begin? Let's just remind ourselves of the historical background to this. The origins of social science in Britain can be traced back to the pioneering work of the social investigators pictured here. Charles Booth and uh, his investigation of poverty in London in the 1880s and 1890s uh, those poverty maps, which I'm sure you've probably heard of. Benjamin Roundtree and his study of, York, of poverty in York in 1901, in particular. And Maud Pember Reeves and her study of living conditions in Lambeth, which were published in round about a pound a week in uh, 1913. I thought it would be um, useful to just touch on a brief overview of the Retail Price Index and its predecessor known as the Cost of Living Index. It's a rather stop and start series of measures. Gradually, some of the approaches and methodologies of the social investigators that I just mentioned get taken up by government agencies, although in a very limited way to begin with. So the Cost of Living Index was actually started just prior to the 19. 14 to 18 war in a limited way. This index gradually became outmoded because of changing, changing patterns of consumption, but it wasn't until 1937 to 38 that a large scale household expenditure inquiry was carried out in order particularly to obtain the facts on working class family expenditure. Further activity on this front was interrupted by the Second World War, rather inconveniently. In June 1947, a new index, the Interim Index of Retail Prices, was started. Again, it was drawing on the 1937 to 38 patterns of expenditure. The Shopping Basket Indicator, which is still in use today, dates from 1947. And this really involves a sort of imaginary or hypothetical shopping basket full of the products that people typically spend their money on. The contents of the basket are fixed for a year 
And since, uh, of course, the prices of individual products go up or down, mainly up, it seems to me, in my experience, uh, so will the cost of the basket. And, of course, what gets chosen to be put in that basket is also a very interesting thing to watch over the years. By the early 1950s, expenditure patterns were changing again, particularly with the lifting of rationing, hence the need for a new, large-scale inquiry in the form of the Household Expenditure Inquiry of 1953. A new index, the Index of Retail Prices, commenced in 1956 using weights based on the expenditure patterns derived from that 53 inquiry. Now, in many ways, the 1953 inquiry was the kind of high watermark of these surveys. Future surveys were not as large in scale. A continuous survey on a smaller scale, the Family Expenditure Survey, was started in January 1957. And under that, each year a sample of about 5,000 addresses were selected and visited in rotation throughout the year. Households were asked to maintain detailed expenditure records for 14 consecutive days. But as I've mentioned, for the 53 inquiry, it was actually 21 days for that, and the, and the total in theory was 20,000 households. Not everybody was in, <laughs> and some of the houses were unoccupied. Back to the Household Expenditure Inquiry in 1953. How did it work and what type of publicity was used? The 20,000 addresses selected were visited by officers of the Ministry of Labour and National Service or the Government's Social Survey Organisation, which also conducted interviews in one-third of the selected areas. The interviewers explained the purpose of the inquiry and how the forms were to be filled in. Hopefully, they were invited into the household rather than just remaining on the doorstep. That was a bad sign, really, if you just stayed on the doorstep. The interviewers, what they did initially was they gave this explanatory leaflet to each adult member of the household asked to help. And this is it. And by looking at this little leaflet, at just four pages, we can um, get an idea of how the inquiry was sold to the public. It's all pretty clear, actually. It's conveyed in um, admirable plain English for the most part. Um, the need for accurate information concerning goods and services in relation to the index of retail prices is emphasised up front. The cost of living index had a great deal of bearing on wages in the highly expanded public sector. According to a cost of living advisory committee note of 19th of January 1954, some 2 million people have their wages automatically adjusted under sliding scale agreements according to movements in the index. It is essential, therefore, that the index should be based on accurate and up-to-date information about spending. There were some other underlying purposes behind the inquiry which were not mentioned in the leaflet, um, particularly with reference to nutrition. The government wished to learn about the nature and extent of deficiencies in diet, but that was very much a secondary purpose. Note that, um, that the ministry, um, at, in the top paragraph, the ministry is offering one pound to each member of the household who helps as an incentive. In reports from local officers following the survey, opinions about the effectiveness of this incentive were mixed. A report from the London and South Eastern Regional Office stated, while the cash was welcome, it was by no means an overwhelming factor in securing cooperation. Some comments suggest that the return was small for the work involved. Mm. 
Another report stated that the offer of £1 did help to gain cooperation, particularly in the poorer households. However, I, I think too that the cash incentive was not the prime driver behind the success of the survey. There were other factors at work and I'll come on to those. Notice also um, the reassurance about the complete anonymity of the survey under that section which says what happens to the information you give. It says uh, all the details you give will be treated as strictly confidential. Your name and address will be kept secret. This was an important selling point. Interviewers assured householders that once the forms had been returned, the personal identity details would be destroyed. There's an exhortation at the bottom of the page along the lines of, your country needs you. Um, only those who spend the money can give the true facts about their expenditure. Will you help to make this inquiry a success? If the one pound cash incentive wasn't the main factor behind the high level of cooperation, what were the truly persuasive selling points? A report from the London and Southeastern Regional Office sums it up admirably. It says that some of the most popular lines of sales talk were A. The possible tie-up of the cost of living with wage claims. B. The non-political nature of the inquiry. C. The complete anonymity of the inquiry. D. It, it was a public spirited action to fill it out. And that last point is crucial. In its triumphant press release, the Ministry of Labour and National Service praised the widespread sense of civic duty that the high level of representation represented. And this is a point that comes through the various reports from the regional officers. In 1953, Britain, coming out of rationing, may have been on the cusp of moving to a more individualistic society focused on materialism and the comforts of home. But the sense of a collective national effort engendered by the Second World War hasn't faded yet. And it still seems to retain much of its power. I think it's also true to state, as a generalisation, that the Britain of the early 1950s was a deferential society compared with modern-day Britain. Incidentally, I understand this image of a Coronation Street party was taken in New England Street in Brighton. In various um, Ministry of Labour and National Service administrative files in two series, Lab 17 and Lab LAB 94, there is a large amount of detailed analysis of the level of public cooperation with the survey, which I'm going to be drawing on. In early 1954, ministry headquarters asked local officers in the various regions for information about their experiences of interviews with members of the public. I like this quaint picture. Uh, obviously, that's not actually a local information officer there, but it kind of, you know, sums up the thing. So. The local officers in the regions duly sent detailed information into headquarters in the form of letters. And I've read through these letters and drawn out the salient points and themes, which are all pretty consistent throughout. Their comments are based on impressions rather than quantitative data, but the general validity of their assessments is backed up by the sheer consistency of the reports from the various regions. Actually, there is some quantitative data, 
within the files which I will refer to. But let's begin with the straightforwardly positive aspects of public cooperation. A comment from the Southwestern Regional Officer sums up the big picture. The general attitude of persons approached was cooperative and friendly. The interviewers who visited the households to explain its purpose and to advise the householders on how to fill out the forms seem to have been highly successful. It's not surprising that they should receive positive comments in the Ministry's own files, but praise for them is very warmly and widely expressed. A draft letter to all regional controllers praised the enthusiasm, patience and tact of the officers who visited the households. A letter from Southern Regional Office refers to the great interest and enthusiasm which our interviewers brought to the job. They took this work on very readily and put a great deal into it in a sustained effort, even when they had to pay visits by bicycle in country districts in all weather conditions. It's a rather quaint notion in a way. The interview process could be amazingly successful. GED Ball of the North Midlands region reported that the majority of our officers were invited indoors and eventually got on very good terms with the family. And in some instances, the acquaintanceship thus made has ripened into a permanent friendship. These are quite, you know, big claims. Another summary from the Midland region stated that some old and lonely people living alone welcomed the visits of interviewers and were sorry when the inquiry was completed. An impression is given of uh, lonely souls simply grateful for the company. A report from Scottish headquarters stated that there were many incidents, e.g. the interviewer who, on satisfactory conclusion of his mission, was invited by two gentle old ladies to join them in family prayers. Another, where the interviewer <laughs> was mistaken for a wedding guest and before he could say a word about the purpose of his visit, found himself with a glass of whiskey in one hand and a piece of cake in the other. It is striking just how conscientious most cooperating households were in their response to the survey. For example, the Southwestern Regional Officer reported, bills and receipts were generally consulted by informants and resort to memory occurred only in respect of minor and odd items. A report relating to the northern region stated the cooperators went to great trouble to record and vouch for their expenditure. Bills, rent books, insurance books, etc. were almost invariably consulted. Many seemed to positively enjoy the survey and it introduced some to the concept of household budgeting. A southern region report stated that most people were genuinely interested in the inquiry and many made the remark that for the first time they saw in detail where their money was being spent and exactly what they were getting for it. Margaret Thatcher would have approved, though she might have been somewhat shocked that people weren't already budgeting in this way. I'd like to show you some examples now from the raw products of the inquiry the household expenditure returns held in our record series LAB24 to demonstrate the level of meticulous detail that some cooperators provided. And it's the data contained in these very returns that the University of Sussex team 
has utilised for the Splendid Living Standards project. So what they did is they've essentially crunched all the data from these returns into a gigantic database. It's really the data in these returns that they've used and that's now available to download from the UK data archive. Thus, this incredibly valuable information will be truly opened up to researchers for the first time. Because, you know, really these uh, actual returns are just described in the most general way. You know, it goes down to sort of town level, towns and cities and, you know, regions, but it doesn't really go down any further than that in the catalogue. So, let's show you an example from Glasgow Central. Now, note the precise quantities, weights of meat that are recorded, sausages, etc. They, they, you know, everything's recorded quite precisely. I mean, some people fretted about this when they were purchasing meat at the butchers, as well as the shillings and pence spent. There's not much in the way of fruit and vegetables. I mean, there's an awful lot of stodge in <laughs> recorded in these returns. No black pudding is in there. Um, uh, Heinz soup, spelt with a, well, it's an interesting spelling, with a sort of E on the end. But we can, you, you can start to see how brand names were already quite well established by 53, 54. And also note spaghetti, with its unusual spelling, one tin. Yeah. So, you know, gradually, Britain is moving to slightly more exotic foods. Now, here's an entry from a relatively well-to-do household in South Sea, Portsmouth. Now, calling it well-to-do, well, that's my assumption, but there are some clues. For example, there's an interviewer's note that the sons are at boarding school and the husband pays all the fees. It's another long and detailed list and some more brand names are mentioned, uh, Rice Krispies, uh, Kitty Cat, <laughs> uh, Lassie, dog food. Yeah, it's all quite interesting stuff. And looking at the same household, the housewife who filled in these returns was incredibly conscientious. You know, look at this long explanation that she volunteers in the notes section, purely optional about filling it in. And she's written, the past three weeks, for a variety of reasons, have not been good examples of my average household expenditure. She goes on to explain why, you know, that she's had some paying guests for bed and breakfast. She's spent far more than usual on repairs and decorations in the house. And uh, then she goes on to detail her average monthly expenditure worked out um, over a more normal 12-month period. This is all her calculations, you know, that she's presenting to them. They probably found it actually more than they could use, uh, really. But, uh, but it does show, doesn't it, a certain attitude. Very cooperative. And just to reinforce the point that the account of expenditure that they expected really did cover everything, not just food. In this entry from uh, a return from Royal Tunbridge Wells, we can see, and it's a bit difficult to see because I think it's written in pencil, but essentially it's um, steel, S-T-A-L, <laughs> no, it's steel wool, one tin of metal polish, one beano, two comics, unspecified, money for the gas meter, and tied soap powder. So these examples show just how thorough and conscientious people were. And I've, I've already covered the reasons for the high degree of cooperation for the survey. 
And I do wonder, actually, on a general note, I do wonder if we're looking at a national character trait here. As I've seen it argued, and I, I'm convinced by this, actually, that the British people like filling in forms in general and have a tendency, you may argue against me, that's fine, but have a tendency to be precise. One of the reasons why the rationing system of coupons works so well was that people liked the preciseness of it, the completeness that it represented, as well as the across-the-board fairness of it. Anyway, it's just a point I'll leave you to mull over. The British love of forms. It is debatable, perhaps. Now, so far, I've been really talking about straightforward cooperation. But now I'd like to start looking at the more nuanced findings and the problematic areas. What other observations did the Ministry of Labour and National Service make after the survey? And again, I'm going to draw on the reports that the officers sent in in the various regions because they've got a number of points in common in these. One thing they say is that women were the most cooperative and the point comes out that, and I quote um, from a report from the northern region, some male wage earners were reluctant to disclose their earnings because of a disparity between what they earned and what they gave their wives. You can see where this is going. There were a few people who flatly refused to give details of income. It was suspected that drinking and betting expenditure was seldom fully disclosed in households where members' records were open to one another. Yes, the difference between the received pay packet and perhaps what the husband might pass on to the wife or whatever. After the inquiry of 1953, it was realised that there had been widespread reluctance to record the full amount spent on alcoholic drink and also tobacco. This was also the experience in the 1937 to 38 inquiry. More evidence of a national trait here? It's, it's a classic example of the sort of factor that social scientists need to take account of with this kind of survey. Sweets and chocolates, ice cream, soft drinks, and expenditure on meals outside the home were also under-recorded, it was uh, found. What, which types of people were less inclined to cooperate? The Eastern Regional Office, based in Cambridge, reported that many elderly people refused to take part in the survey, and there's a general agreement on this point in the regional reports though a report from the southern region was more nuanced. Elderly folk were often reluctant at first, but after cooperation had been obtained, they were one of the most helpful classes. Sometimes the one-pound payment was an inducement to pensioners owing to their meagre incomes. It is implied in the reports that the elderly were more suspicious and tended to find the array of forms rather bewildering. Farmers are one group who, which are mentioned in particular, who were reluctant to give details of their income, as were some self-employed people. These groups were concerned that information would be revealed to the income tax authorities. Yes, there was, according to the Welsh office, the Wales office, a deep-rooted suspicion that there was a hidden reason for the inquiry other than that stated and generally it was attributed to an income tax snoop. However, although farmers are singled out for special mention in this context, there was a general support for the observation of the Midland region that people in country districts are found to be more approachable and less suspicious 
than those in built-up areas, with the inference that urban areas were less cooperative. Areas where certain trades were concentrated could be problematic, particularly the sort of jobs where the head of the household might be away for a large part of the day. It could be difficult to make contact or secure cooperation in such areas. Mining and fishing areas are mentioned, although this sometimes applied to the countryside as well, particularly at harvest time. There was a general consensus that the higher income groups were less inclined to cooperate. Business and professional people, the upper and middle classes. An Eastern Region report stated that the middle classes were inclined to be hostile, giving the impression that they resented inquiries into their private affairs. An example is quoted of a senior civil servant who worked in the Inland Revenue Department in South End who refused to allow members of his household to take part in the inquiry, stating that the best way to reduce the cost of living was to halve the size of the civil service. And uh, he was a civil servant himself, so it's quite interesting. Southern Region Report stated that the households which did not cooperate were mainly in the higher income groups. Examples quoted are occupants of a super service flat, lawyers, a senior civil servant, a doctor, a dentist, and the self-employed businessman. We can only surmise that these categories did not feel that there was so much at stake for them in completing this survey. Now let's move on to a few facts and figures. A paper by the Retail Prices Technical Committee gives the grand total of households who did not cooperate with the inquiry, including households which could not be contacted, were not eligible, or the address was not occupied, was 7,006 out of the 20,000 originally selected. Some analysis was carried out of the reasons for not cooperating, shown in this extract, which are quite interesting. Yeah, when you look at it, although some of the categories are a bit vague, Obviously, it's quite a high figure there under responses such as too busy, too much bother, or too difficult. And um, you can see, uh, yeah, old age or old age associated with sickness, 406. Households who declined to give any information whatsoever, including their reasons for not cooperating, 926. <laughs> so there obviously, yeah, there were some refuse nicks. I mean, referring to my earlier mention of resentment about government restrictions, which you know, may have boosted the success of Passport to Pimlico some four years before the inquiry. So is there any evidence of such feeling? Precious little, it seems, though it does appear on the radar. For example, a London and South Eastern regional report stated that there were a few isolated instances of somewhat irate reactions, due in some cases to the fact that other government departments had been making investigations into food regulations or income tax matters, and of course, anti-everything fanatics. A Northwestern Region report commented that there was, of course, the odd refusal because of a dislike of any form of government control or direction or inquiry of any kind. However, it appears that this type of refusal was generally rare. GED Bull of the North Midlands region stated that the interviewers at the commencement of the inquiry in January 1953 
all felt the benefit of the initial official publicity which countered the bad effect of the unfortunate and irresponsible use of the word snoopers in some newspapers and especially a BBC broadcast. Now, I haven't, I haven't actually been able to investigate the newspaper archives on that point, but I'd, I'd like to in the future if I can. Which regions were less inclined to cooperate? This is a gigantic table, a summary of results, visits for the whole country. I mean, if you look at the figures in the last set of columns in this table, the lowest percentage figures for households supplying complete records are, in reverse order, the County of London, and I think that the County of London, that excludes the City of London, 55%. It's still not a bad response, but anyway, 55% is the lowest. The Northwestern region, 59%, and the Southwestern region, 60%. The highest result is for Northern Ireland, 80%. Now, I haven't found any truly satisfactory explanations for these results in the files. It's stated that rural households cooperated more than those in urban areas and that might explain the relatively low responses for the county of london and the heavily industrialized northwest but then you've also got a relatively poor showing for the southwest which i would think of as more rural anyway i mean any explanations you can think of would be welcome uh, <laughs> perhaps we could discuss this afterwards so moving to a conclusion We've been looking at the more problematic aspects of the household expenditure inquiry, the aspects of it which were associated with non-cooperation, but drawing to a conclusion, the big picture regarding public cooperation is summed up very well by that glowing press release I referred to of the Ministry of Labour and National Service in, in July 1954 with its triumphant reaction to the estimated 67% completion rate. The fact that two-thirds of all the households proved willing to go to so much trouble to assist the inquiry is a clear indication of a widespread sense of civic duty. In 1953, Britain, coming out of rationing, may have been on the cusp of moving to a more individualistic society focused on materialism and the comforts of the home, but the sense of a collective national effort engendered by the Second World War hasn't faded as yet, and it still seems to retain much of its power. However, perhaps we can see in the reported refusals to cooperate in the higher income groups reacting against state intrusion that this is just beginning to break down. In this talk, my aim has been to give some historical context to the household expenditure inquiry and the fascinating returns that we hold in the series LAB24. As I've mentioned, it's great, brilliant that these returns in terms of the data in them, have now been fully opened up to inquirers by the University of Sussex in collaboration with the National Archives and that you can now download the data, it's free to do so, from the UK Data Archive. You've just got to accept their terms and conditions and you can download it. And I think the whole idea is to put it there as a resource for historians to use. But also, I should mention as well, the very impressive Teacher Scholar Scheme. We have Andrew Payne, head of our education department, here with us. The uh, Teacher Scholar Scheme is a, is a product of a close collaboration with the University of Sussex team and the National Archives. There was a really excellent scheme involving some teachers who then, under the guidance given by the National Archives and University of Sussex, 
they've created packages which can now be delivered in classrooms you know, by teachers, drawing on the data on these returns, capturing the imagination of children in terms of, okay, well, what is your... I think this, one of the sort of things is, you know, your, your shopping basket now, thinking about it now, but then thinking about it then and looking at the examples of what people spent their money on as a way of drawing children's interest into modern history. I think that's absolutely brilliant. The 1953 Household Expenditure Survey was clearly very significant. It was sourced by Professors Peter Townsend and Brian Abel Smith in their highly influential 1965 study on poverty, The Poor and the Poorest. Anyway, that's where I shall stop. Thank you very much. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 9th of January 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.